have your Bible, I invite you to go ahead and grab those and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And, and our passage in particular that we'll be studying this morning is Ephesians 5, 15 through 21. And as you turn there, I want you to just kind of have a moment of reflection. How careful or cautious of a person were you before 2020? Think about your life before March. What did it look like? Maybe for, for many of us, this year is the first time that we've been forced to slow down and to really consider how we live our daily lives. I mean, for me personally, every morning before I leave our home, my final item on our checklist is to grab our mask. Never before in my life have I had to think about that. Every time I walk into a store or a grocery store or a restaurant, I'm always thinking about how close I am to a person. I'm constantly aware of my surroundings. I mean, just think about this past week and maybe your, your Thanksgiving gathering. Did it look differently this year than last year? I know many friends and, and family members who were unable to, to see family this year out of concern of, of health danger, of potentially harming somebody else because they might have, have been around someone who had COVID. More than any time in my life and maybe in yours, 2020 has forced us to think about how to be cautious and careful with our daily lives. But what is interesting for us as believers, as Christians, we've always been called to be cautious. This isn't some um, abnormality to our lives. It is the expectation that God has laid before us. I mean, think about what Moses prayed in Psalm 90. It says, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Or think about what Solomon spoke in Proverbs to his son. Think about the counsel in Proverbs 22, 3, where it says, The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. Or think about Jesus' instruction to his disciples before he sent them out. He said, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wool, so be wise as serpent and innocent as dove. Why the, cause for, why the call for caution and Carefulness? Why such warnings? Because sin is always creeping and danger is ever present. God knows our propensity and our tendency to be envious of the wicked and to be drawn away by the desires of the flesh. And so for this reason, he has continually called us to be aware and cautious of our surroundings, to be careful about the potential dangers we're going to face alongside us on our journey to heaven. And he's beckoned us to live lives of vigilance. Thankfully, he's given us the resources we need to live a careful life. And that's what my sermon is this morning. Live carefully. That's our title. Live carefully. So if you have your Bibles, we'll read Ephesians 5, 15 through 21. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of time, for the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God. The Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another 
out of reverence for Christ. So you guys have, as a church have been slowly working through the book of Ephesians. And, and Kyle has helpfully shown us as a, a church here that the first three chapters of Ephesians are about a gospel foundation. He's shown us of how God from eternity past has revealed in Christ his mystery. This mystery to reveal and to redeem a people to himself for all eternity. It's a gospel foundation. That's Ephesians 1 through 3. Then Ephesians 4 through 6 is a gospel life or gospel living. It is how this gospel foundation shapes every area of our life. Transforms the way we live and the way that we think. This gospel foundation has practical implications for our every single day. This is why Paul is helping the Ephesians believers. He's he's calling them to, to fully comprehend what Christ has accomplished. That they should no longer walk as they once did and be dead in their sins and cut off from God's people, but live free from the power of sin and be united to the people of God. This is the message of Ephesians, that God has saved us for himself, for his glory and our good. And last week in the the first few verses of Ephesians 5, you, you saw that God is, through the Apostle Paul, is calling us to be children of light. We are no longer in darkness. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and God has redeemed us to be children of light. So live in the light. Expose ourselves to the light. Do not conform to the pattern of our former living, but expose the works of darkness in our lives. Be children of light. In the, the passage before ours today, Paul quotes what we believe is Isaiah, potentially Isaiah twenty six nineteen. He says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. He's saying, live as a resurrected people. But Paul is saying, live as a resurrected people. He's saying, live your life now like you will live it for all eternity, resurrected from the dead. And so in our, in our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul is saying, in light of this great salvation that Christ has brought to us, in light of being spiritually raised from the dead and soon to be raised physically from the dead, he's saying, live carefully. Live carefully. Now, what's interesting is you'll read the book of Ephesians slowly. You'll see that Paul all throughout calls them to walk a certain way. See, we see here in verse 15, he says, look carefully then how you walk. And what he means by walk is just how you live. So there's seven instances where Paul mentions walking. You go back to Ephesians 2, 1 through 2. He says, you once were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Past tense. Or Ephesians 2, 10. For you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Or Ephesians 4, 1, that he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you've been called. Or Ephesians 4, 17, he says, no longer walking as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Or Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2, he says, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Or verse 8 of chapter 5, walk as children of light. The book of Ephesians is about this gospel walk, about how do we live and walk as believers in Christ. And here in verse 15, he's essentially concluding these walk passages. He's summarizing, he's synthesizing, and he's saying, walk carefully. All that I've been leading up to now is to this point, walk carefully. Paul is a good shepherd and is a good guide and he's uh, instructing us and reminding us that the Christian life isn't passive. We aren't aimlessly wandering through this life. 
but we're pursuing Christ with all of our heart, soul, and mind. Pursuing Jesus is not an eight-to-five job. It's not a weekend hobby. No, the Christian life is one that is to be lived with intention and purpose. It is our identity. The Christian life is to be pursued with vigilance and vigor. Why? Satan, the world, and the flesh are still waging war against us. In this moment of exile, we have an enemy who's seeking to kill, steal, and destroy our very lives. And so Paul is encouraging these believers to be careful about how they live, to walk closely to Christ until Christ returns or until he calls them home. Well, then how do we live carefully? If Paul is calling these believers and and, in, and by way of them, us, to live carefully, how do we do it? I've got three points today that I want to give you from this text. First, if we're going to live carefully, we have to have a right perspective. A right perspective. Look here what he says in verse 15 and 16. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Paul is... He's calling them to step back and to be aware of the time and the age in which they live. He's calling them to have a a right perspective. He's saying believers are to to be aware about how they pursue life, how they perceive time. Not to be aimless and apathetic. He's saying, make the most of your time. Redeem it. Do not waste your time in this life. He's trying to help them understand how fleeting life is. Maybe you've heard of the, the famed missionary Jim Elliott. He, he summarized this, what Paul is trying to say pretty good. He says, God, this is a prayer that he prayed. God, I, I pray thee, light these idle sticks of my life, and may I burn for thee. Consume my life, my God, for it is thine. I seek not a long life, but a full one, like you, Lord Jesus. That's basically what Paul is saying here. He's saying, hey, be careful how you live. Try to make the most of your time. Don't seek a long life. Seek a full life. Look to how Christ lived and made the most of his days. You ever thought about what's your most precious commodity? What's the most precious resource that you have? What's time? Time is our most precious commodity and resource. It's more valuable than our money, our homes. It's more valuable than what we have on our resume. It's invaluable. It moves faster than we think, and we never get it back. You can't store it up or save it for later or give it to somebody else. You're only allowed to spend what you were given each day. And instead of lamenting how we lose time or we don't have enough time in the day, we should be plotting for how we can make the most of the time that God has given us. God is all throughout the Bible, shown us how fleeting our lives are. Think about, again, what I read while I go with Moses. He's saying, teach us to number our days in Psalm 90, 12. Why? So that we may get a heart of wisdom. So that we may understand that our life is short, that our life is fleeting. Think about what Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes. Some people think it's meaningless, meaningless. That's actually a bad translation. It's vanity, vanity. And what vanity means is fleeting. He's saying all of life is fleeting. So beware. That this life passes faster than you can imagine. Or think about what Paul says to these Athenians at the Areopagus in Acts 17. He's saying, hey, God is the one who set times and seasons and boundaries in which we lived. And he says the time of ignorance is up. He commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world of righteousness by a man he has appointed. By a man he's appointed. He's saying the time is soon ending. 
that God's judgment is soon coming. See, as believers, if we're going to live carefully, we have to be aware of the time that God has allotted to us. God has numbered our days. He's allotted each one of us the amount of time that we will live on this earth. We shouldn't lament how little of time we have, but we should rejoice and be thankful for how God has entrusted us with time to be good stewards, to live carefully, to have a right perspective, to, to keep our eyes from being focused on our circumstances and look to Christ. Look to eternity where our lives will be spent forever with him. See, when we, we, we fix our eyes on Christ, it helps us have a right perspective of our time. So brothers and sisters, members of Imprint, how are you using your time? Think back this past week or this past month or this past year. How are you using your time? And what does it communicate when you think about your time? You may not have it on your phone, but but my phone has this app that tells me at the end of each week how much time I've spent on my phone, an average day. And then it goes down and it breaks down uh, how much time I've spent on certain apps. If you were to look at this past month or this past year, if you were to get a report of how you spent your time, what would it say? What would it communicate about your priorities and what you value in this life? What would it say about what you believe about God and eternity? Would it say that you spend more time on social media or in prayer? Would it say you spend more time reading your Bible or watching the news? Would it say that you have more conversations that are encouraging believers to walk closer with Christ? Or that you grumble and complain more than anything else? How we spend our time communicates what we love, value, and hope for. Brothers and sisters, I would encourage you. Be grateful for the time that God has given you. And be active in how you spend it. Don't be passive. Think through your week. Pray through your calendar. Pray that God will give you a heart of wisdom so that you would spend your days well because your days are short. Pray and pursue a heart heart and posture that has a right understanding of the time that we've been given. And seek to make the most of it. Why does Paul implore the the saints to, to make the most of the time? Because the days are evil. Look what he says again. He says, making the best use of time because the days are evil. What does Paul mean here by the days are evil? And why is he saying, be aware of that? I think Paul is trying to say the age in which we live is ruled by Satan. He's called the prince, the power of the air. And in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says that their people, their eyes have been veiled by the God of this age. Growing up, there are many people who were looking for the last days. Are we in the last days? Are we in the last days? But the Bible has already spoken. We have been in the last days since Christ's ascension. If you go look at 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, Paul tells Timothy, Hey, in the last days, there will be these things. But as for you, he's saying, Timothy, you're in the last days now. So we've been in the last days. And these days in which we live are evil. Why does Paul want us to be aware of that? So we're not caught off guard. So that we're prepared to help us understand what we're up against each day. And we need to be encouraged. The Bible tells us that though Satan is the God of this age, his days and his influence is limited. That he's under God's jurisdiction. But yet we have to understand that Satan is like a suicide bomber on TV that we see. He's trying to take out as many people as he possibly can. Paul wants us to know what we're up against. Because each day we're... 
countering spiritual forces that want to attack our identity and our affection. Living in an evil age means that our identity and affections will always be attacked. I want you to think about this for a moment. Think about all the things that you've been studying and thinking about in Ephesians. Think of all these wonderful promises that, and truths that Paul has mentioned. He says that they have been predestined by God. They've been brought from death to life. They've received mercy. They've been purchased by the blood of Christ. They are no longer sinners, but saints. They are free from not only the penalty of sin, but the power of sin. They are not alone on this journey, but they've been brought into the family of God. They are part of the church, and it is the church, this assembly, that God is making his manifold wisdom known to the world. He says their identity is no longer dead, but they've been made alive. They've been raised together with Christ. They've been redeemed and adopted into the family of God. This is our identity. This is what Paul has said. But as we live in an evil age, you know what Satan will do? You know what our flesh will do? You know what our word will do? It'll flip it on its head and say, are you really saved? Is Christ's blood really sufficient for you? Living in an evil age, what it, what it does, is it, it messes with our identity because what it says is we are defined by our past and not our future. That our, our circumstances are bigger than our God. It confuses our identity. Causes us to, to, to live and be inactive. I mean, just imagine if you had a child that one day came to you and just said, am I really your child? And you did everything you can to, to convince them, but they go live in the world and they're confused. Who's my real parents? Can you imagine the anxiety that would be to not know who you're, you're from and what your real identity is? You'd be inactive and, and ineffective. You'd have to have a blood test to prove, no, you are my child. And the good news is we as believers have a blood test. It's the blood of Christ on the cross that displays that we've been purchased by Christ. That Satan's accusations no longer have grounds. What a joy. So living in an evil age, they, they come after our identity. Satan, the world, and the flesh do. But not only our identity, but our affections. See, Paul in this letter, he's continually talked about how we're to call to, to love Christ and love the saints more than the things of this world. But what Satan does is he twists it. He wants us to love the things of this world more than Christ. He wants us to love our country and party over Christ and his kingdom. He wants us to love our possessions, our jobs, our sin more than Christ. He will do in many ways what he did to Jesus in Matthew 4. In the wilderness, Jesus was weak. He had not been hadn't eaten. And so Satan knew that in that moment the flesh was weak and he offered him the kingdoms of this world in exchange for worship. Satan, in your weakest moments, he wants to alter and take your affections away from Christ and transfer to himself. Saints, it's, it's helpful for us to know and be aware that we live in an evil age. It helps us to know that we are waging war each day as we live in this world. But how are you doing in this moment with your identity? If you were to sit down and with somebody that didn't know you and say, who are you? How would you answer that question? Are you in crisis in who you are in Christ? Are you at complete peace because of what he's done? How are your affections? What do you love the most in your life? What do you find joy and delight in? And I would encourage you, how often are you reflecting and meditating and praying and speaking these wonderful promises that, that God has given us in his word? 
Are you allowing the past to define and alter how you see yourself? Are you allowing suffering to distort your understanding of what Christ has done for you? Brothers and sisters, be careful. For Christ has redeemed you. He's given you a new identity and a new heart. So part of of living carefully is having a right perspective about time and the age in which we live so that we can make the most of our days and protect our identity and affections. Not only do we need a right perspective to live carefully, we need a right purpose. We need a right purpose. Look at verse 17. Look back at your Bible to verse 17. He says this, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. He's saying to live carefully and to not be foolish. You must understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, growing up in the church in the South, that was a question that I heard so many Christians ask themselves. What is the will of Lord? What is the will of the Lord for my life? And really what they're asking was, what does God have planned for me? Where should I go to college and what job should I do or or who should I marry? And I, I do believe clearly that the Bible speaks to some of those things. That God is concerned about your daily life and where you work and who you marry. Just look at the book of Proverbs. I think it's helpful. But I don't think that's what Paul is referencing here. He's referencing something completely different, I think, about the will of God. He's, he's talking about the ultimate will of God. And even if you look throughout Ephesians just chapter 1, if you do a study of Ephesians 1, look how he talks about the will of God. It gives us a clearer understanding of what he means here in verse 17. He says in Ephesians 1, 40, Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, he says in love that God has predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace. Or you can go a few verses down. Next verse, 7 through 10. Or actually verse 9, he says, He's making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan to do what? To unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. Or go down to verse 11 and 12. That he's working all things according to the counsel of his will for the praise of his glory. So what is Paul saying here? He's saying God's will. We need to understand what God has done, is doing, and will do. That is the will of God he's focused on right here. So what is the will of God here? It's our adoption. So focus, understand, and know that you have been adopted into the family of God. That if you have been adopted, that nothing can take you away from God's family. Not only that is the will of God, but the will of God is God as he's uniting all things to himself. In heaven and on earth. And he's working all things according to the counsel of his will. So Paul says, understand these things. And when you, when you hear him say understand, what does that mean to you? I don't think it's mere mental assent. See, I think what Paul is saying here is see what God is doing and join alongside him. Submit and submerge your life to what God has been doing for all time. So it's not just a mental ascent. It's a life posture. It's a life pursuit. Paul is saying submerge and submit and reorient your life to be a part of what God is doing. He's saying to live carefully. Don't seek empty pursuits. Don't be foolish with your time. Seek God's kingdom first, as we see in Matthew 6. And Jesus will take care of everything else in your life. Think about, live for Live for God's plan. Live for God's purposes. Trust and know that he's working all things out for himself. And when you wake up each day with that confidence, 
that God is redeeming all things to himself, you won't live as a victim of the culture. You'll live as a victor knowing that God is working all things out for his glory and our good. This understanding shapes and it colors how we live in our world today. It gives you hope and courage as you go into your job, as you walk into a difficult situation at work or uh, in your neighborhood or with your family. You can trust that this is not it, that this situation does not define you. There's coming a day when you will stand with all the redeemed, praising the lamb who has redeemed you for himself. Gives us courage to go on, to not give up, to not waver. How well do you understand the will of the Lord in your life? And it helps guide all these decisions that you make about who you should marry, where you should work. We should think about the will of God often. It guides us, it directs us. In light of J.I. Packer's passing this past year, I saw that you guys are reading his Concise Theology book. It's a great book. But I went back and I reread Knowing God. I hadn't read it in probably 10 years. And there's a quote that has stuck to me about knowing God's will. How do you know God's will for your life? And Packer writes this. He said, guidance, like all God's acts of blessing under the covenant of grace, is a sovereign act. Not merely does God will to guide us in the sense of showing us his way that we may tread it. He wills also to guide us in the more fundamental sense of ensuring that whatever happens, whatever mistakes we make, we shall come safely home. Slippings and strayings, there will be no doubt, but the everlasting arms are beneath us. We will be caught, rescued, restored, This is God's promise. This is how good he is. And so that's why I think Paul, for three chapters, lays out this beautiful gospel foundation because he's trying to encourage these saints to not be discouraged, to not be overwhelmed by the pressures of this life because God will bring us safely home to himself. So I don't know where you find yourself today, but I would encourage you, think on the will of God. Think what he's revealed to you in Christ. Think what he's done for you in Christ. I don't you know if you remember life prior to uh, not having Waze or Google Maps or Apple Maps on your phone. I have no idea where I'm going half the time now because I'm so stuck to my phone. But I can remember briefly those days when my friends or dad would give me counsel where I was going. And so I would just write it down on a piece of paper and I would just try to follow the streets. And I can remember moments of driving home from a, maybe from college or going to a friend's house where I would be going somewhere and I would not feel really comfortable about where I was going. I would think to myself, this, is, this doesn't look right. But I would trust the instructions. And more times than not, I would get there. And I know sometimes you look up as a Christian and you see injustice. You see heartache and pain and suffering. And sometimes it doesn't look right. And, and I want to encourage you, it's not right. But one day it will be right. So keep instructing the Or keep following the instructions that God has given you in his word. And keep trusting in these promises of what he's doing. And what he will do. And what he has displayed in Christ. So saints, whose will do you want more in your life? God's or your own? Whose will do you think about more in your life? God's or your own? Do you give your life to things that will live beyond you? Like evangelism and discipleship? I want to encourage you. Give your life to things 
that will pay dividends not only in this life, but in the next. Seek to build up this bride, this church, this congregation. Pray for it daily. Pray that it would flourish. Pray that that God would use the gifts that you've given, that he's given you, to build up this this community, this, this people. Pray that God would place people in your life that you could share the good news of Jesus. Are you praying for opportunities for evangelism? Are you seeking those out with your life? Are you pursuing it? So not only does uh, living carefully require a right perspective, it requires a right purpose, which means understanding God's will, submitting to it, delighting in it, and committing to it. My third and final point this morning is that living carefully requires a right spirit. A right spirit. I want you to look here in verses 18. He says, verse 18, he says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, I grew up in a place where it was very much about the temperance, right? And they would use this verse to talk about, you just don't drink altogether. But that's not actually what Paul is referencing. So the reason why he mentions drunkenness, it feels out of the blue. Why is Paul talking here about drunkenness? Because he's saying that drunkenness encompasses a foolish life. Drunkenness encompass, encompasses a foolish life. Kind of goes back to what he says earlier about not living in, being darkened in your mind and understanding. That's what drunkenness pictures. It, it pictures a life of foolishness, uh, pursuing vain and, and wicked pursuits. And as I read for this sermon, I read Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a pastor in England. He, he referenced that if you look up alcohol, it is always listed in a, a book of pharmacology as a depressant. What alcohol does, right, is it it depresses your senses in every single way. And so I think that's what what Paul is saying is is when you're drunk, when you've had too much alcohol in your system, you're depressed in every way. You are not living according to the wisdom that God has given you in his word. Whereas the spirit is a stimulant. It enhances our life in every way. So we have... Three children, three and under, and we have a three-month-old. My, one of my favorite parts of the morning is drinking my two cups of coffee. It just, it's glorious. Heavenly nectar in that little cup. It's wonderful. I love it so much. Why do I drink that? So it stimulates my mind. It gives me the energy that I need. And that's kind of this idea that the way we get the most out of our lives, the way we live carefully in this world, is being stimulated and guided, not by the former ways of our life, not by the former thinking that we used to think, but thinking and being guided by the Spirit. Now, depending on your background, when you think about being filled with the Spirit, this is kind of an exciting idea. You're like, yes, this is what I want. I want this experience. But we need to be careful here. Because this isn't necessarily an emotional experience. It's more about a life. It's about a pursuit with the people. And I would remind you that there's a difference here than what Paul said in Ephesians 1.13. He says that we were sealed with the Spirit for the day of redemption. As a down payment, as a deposit for the guarantee of our salvation. You remember that early on in Ephesians 1. So you, you can't undo the seal. What has been sealed in you, what the Holy Spirit has brought about in your life, you can't undo. So you're sealed for all eternity. But you can be filled daily. You can be filled or, or not filled daily with the Spirit. And this is something that we need to pursue. So how do we live? How do we be filled with the Spirit? What does Paul give us 
here to know how to be filled with the Spirit. Well, look what he says in verse 19 and on. He says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So there's three things that I think Paul gives us for how we can be spirit-filled. So we're going to live carefully. We've got to be spirit-filled. And I think Paul gives us three things here that help us to be spirit-filled. The first is this. We have to see that the spirit-filled life is communal. The spirit-filled life is communal. He says addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Well, the, the passage that's helpful for us to understand a little bit more what he means is Colossians 3.16. It's kind of the sister passage to what we're reading here in Ephesians 5. And in Colossians 3.16, Paul says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. Again, it's that idea of communal. So yeah, being spirit-filled is an individual thing that we do daily as we walk, as we submit to God's word. But it's communal. It's us together. It's us as a collective Desiring and seeking to build up this body. See the word of Christ dwell amidst this congregation to grow and take root and to thrive. It isn't just this emotional experience. It is the community of God working together to fight our sin, to walk closely with Christ so that he would rule and reign in our lives together. So this idea of being communal, of teaching. He says addressing, which means speaking. So speaking to one another, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And as you study commentators, there's no real distinction between psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. But it's basically work to edify one another. Work to build one another up so that you may be fed and grow spiritually. So we we live in the city. So where we live in D.C., we are four blocks from the Supreme Court building and five blocks from the Capitol building. So we get out and we walk there. And one of the challenges is when you have a young family is figuring out how do we get groceries. Especially in the pandemic, we want to be careful. So we've kind of decided that we're just going to budget in Amazon grocery delivery. So it's what we do. They deliver it to our front door. And one of the things that has been so fun in that is to see how excited our girls are to see what food they're going to eat. They just love going through the bags. It's like, what have you brought for us to eat this time? So excited to eat, right? Love going to the grocery store. Love seeing the food. And that's how we should approach our Sunday gatherings. Is knowing that through our Pastor Kyle here that, that God has given him a word for us to feast on. That we should be excited and come to church with an anticipation because we're going to have a meal together on the word of God. And you should be thinking when you when you gather together in your community groups or when you get together for lunch or for coffee. It should be your aim as you meet together as a church to say, what can I bring to the table today that would do spiritual good to this person? You see, because that's discipleship. That is what discipleship means is it means just helping people follow Jesus. It doesn't mean that you have to be at a certain level on your spiritual growth chart so that you can help somebody follow Jesus. If you're a Christian, you can help someone follow Jesus. And the way that you do that is taking the word of Christ, as Paul says in Colossians, and you're in Ephesians, and in trying to do them spiritual good with it. So who in your life right now and in this community of saints are you trying to do spiritual good to? Who are you praying for? Who are you seeking to build up and encourage with the word of God? When you meet together outside of this gathering, what are you bringing to the table to see them grow and flourish spiritually? That is what it means to be spirit-filled, is seeking 
to see other people thrive in Christ, to see the, their sin diminish and their love for Christ increase. So not only do we need to address one another in, in love and speaking psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to them, look what he says in verse 21 about this communal aspect, submitting to one another out of reference for Christ. Submitting to one another out of reference for Christ. So part of this spirit-filled life is submission. So if you, if you were to, in comparison, go to 1 Peter 2, Peter calls the people of God, the church, the, a royal priesthood and a holy nation. And he's saying there, later on in that chapter, that the way in which God makes the gospel visible to a lost and dying world is through submission to authority. So you, you may not realize it, but when you submit to the authority that God has placed in your life, God is preaching the gospel to the people around you. God is preaching the gospel to people around you because when you think about the fall, what is the fall? Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, I want to be independent of authority. And so submission is counterculture, it's counter to our nature. And when we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, we're displaying the gospel. So what authority has God placed in your life? Paul would later say in Ephesians 5, wives, submit to your own husbands as you'll talk about. Wives, are you doing a good job of laying down your life to, to voluntarily support your husband through submission? Husbands, are you laying down your, your life for your wife and supporting her and seeing her th- flourish with the word of God? What would your boss have to say about you? Would he or she see Christ in you by the way you submit? Even if they're bad bosses, what would they say about your life? Are you being a good member of this church and submitting to the leadership of Kyle? As Hebrews 13, 17 says, to obey your leaders, for they will be ones who will give an account for your soul. What's your posture and disposition to the leadership that you have in this church? Are you praying for them? And even as a, a covenant community, you have authority over one another to make sure that we're walking together in Christ. How are you doing? Fulfilling that covenant. We need to encourage one another. To continue to be faithful, to submit through our submission, the gospel is clearly displayed. So not only is the spiritual life communal, it is confessional. It's not only communal, it's confessional. See what he says here. Singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. What he's trying to say is the way in which we encourage one another is by confessing our faith together. When we gather together, when we meet for coffee, when we try to disciple one another, the content actually matters. Content matters. That's why Paul says earlier in Ephesians or Colossians 3 that the word of Christ dwell among you richly. Not necessarily what a podcast said recently or what you heard on the news. Let the content be Christ, what Christ has done. One of the, the things I'm concerned about kind of in Christian evangelical world is there's a, a lot of popular Christian worship bands that a lot of people love and they, they know them and they sing their songs. But their content in many ways could be written by a non-Christian. The things they're singing and saying, they're not edifying because they're, it's all about self. It's all about me and my emotion. I mean, just, just think about it. If you were, if you were to grab your uh, song sheet from today, think about these wonderful lyrics of Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. Come behold the wondrous mystery. He, the perfect son of man, in his living and his suffering, never trace nor stain of sin. See the true and better Adam come to save the hellbound man. Christ, the great and sure fulfillment of the law. In him we stand. 
This is what it means to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It means to confess our faiths together. It means to point one another to Christ so that we may be edified and built up and encouraged. And when the content of our meetings and our gathering is Christ, we all benefit. We're all encouraged. We're all built up. So when you meet together, make sure that your meetings are around the word. Because it's the word that produces life. It's the word that gives us strength. That's why when Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 says, I I knew nothing among you, Corinthians, except Christ and him crucified. Even early on in 1 Corinthians 1.18, he says, It's the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it's the power of God unto those who are being saved. Our content matters. So make sure that when we gather, we're confessing our faith together. We'll be encouraged. We'll be convicted. We'll be guided. We'll be reminded and we'll be protected. Not only is the spirit-filled life communal and confessional, finally it's consecrated. It's consecrated, meaning it's unto the Lord. Look how many times, look what Paul references here. In 19, 20, and 21, he says this in, in 19. Making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of Reverence for Christ. The spirit-filled life is a life that is dedicated to God in every way. A spirit-filled life is one that realizes the will of God and says, I want that in my life. And so in my thoughts, in my heart, and in my life, I'm dedicating my life to the Lord. Sounds very similar, uh, familiar to Romans 12, 1 and 2 about this is your spiritual act of worship. Offer your bodies as a, a living sacrifice to God. So if you want to live carefully in this life, wake up every day and give your all to God. Which means you, you simply pursue the life that, that Paul has laid out in Ephesians 4, 5 and 6. It's a life that is dedicated to the Lord in every way. So if we could just watch your life for a moment. Who are you living for? Who are you offering worship to? When you lay down at night, what are you thinking about before you fall asleep? But when you wake up in the morning, what are the first things you're thinking about? What does that say about our God? What does it say about your life? So brothers and sisters, as we see from this passage, we're called to live carefully, to walk carefully. We live in an evil age. Our days are short. We're called to to be wise, to make the best use of time. We're called to understand, to not be foolish, but to understand the will of God, submit to it, see it take root and bear fruit in our lives. And we're called to be spirit-filled, which is communal, it's confessional, it's consecrated. So I want to encourage you in this. Pick up the cross and carry it daily. Choose the cross over comfort. Submit your life unto God and His plans and purposes for your life. Don't be discouraged, brothers and sisters, for our time on earth is far shorter than we can imagine, and our future home is better than we had hoped for. Let's pray.